This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 147. In this episode, I will share some of the early history of the legendary Gary Cantrell, or Lazarus Lake, who was recently inducted into the American Ultra Running Hall of Fame. Looking for a good gift to put on your Christmas list this year? How about requesting some of the books in my Ultra Running History series available on Amazon? The most recent book is Classic Ultramarathon Beginnings, which tells the origin stories of nine classic ultras, including the Barkley Marathons. Get them on Amazon, the Ultra Running History series, by me, Davy Crockett. Gary Cantrell, also known as Lazarus Lake of Tennessee, was recently inducted into the American Ultra Running Hall of Fame. Most people recognize him for creating the legendary Barkley Marathons, arguably the toughest trail race in the world. But few understand that he once was a talented runner during the 1970s and early 1980s. His running exploits when he was in his 20s and 30s groomed his experience into the most famous extreme sports race director in the world and turning him into an encyclopedia of ultra-running wisdom. To understand the complexities of the man, Lazarus Lake, one must learn about his background and experiences that led up to the birth of the Barkley. Gary Cantrell was born in 1954 in Caldwell, Texas. His parents were Franklin and Flores Cantrell, both of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Gary's ancestral roots were solidly Southern. His Cantrells lived in Tennessee and Arkansas for generations. He had ancestors who were among the early colonial American settlers. His first Cantrell ancestor in America was his seventh great-grandfather, Richard Cantrell, who emigrated from England to colonial America in 1682 to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It is believed that he made the bricks for the first two brick homes built in Philadelphia. Nearly all of Gary's ancestral families were deeply impacted by the Civil War. His third great-grandfather, Ransom Blades, was an outspoken Union sympathizer living in Missouri, favoring the Northern causes. During the war, fearing for his life, Ransom, the father of 11, left Missouri and went to Kansas. Other ancestors fought on the side of the South, and most were affected by battles, lost brothers or sons, and had troops raid their towns. Gary's father was an outstanding athlete and a star on his sports teams. He was friends with Andy Payne of Oklahoma, who won the 1928 Race Across America, also known as the Bunyan Derby. As a child, 
Gary would enjoy hunting with his father and grandfather in the outdoors. His family moved around quite a bit in Oklahoma. He ended up going to ten different schools. His childhood was filled with activity. He once described a favorite grade school playground game called White Horse, requiring partners. He said, One boy rode on the other boy's shoulders, and he tried to put other teams out by either knocking them to the ground or dislodging the rider. I teamed up with a guy named Gary Welch, and we were almost unbeatable. He was the biggest kid in the school, and one of those guys as wide as he was tall. I was the smallest and rode atop his shoulders like a pet monkey. Actually, I was more of a human grappling hook. I held on to Gary with both legs and one arm, and used my free hand to grab hold of any part of the opposing team. When Gary was 12, his family moved from Oklahoma to Middle Tennessee, where Gary's father worked as an aerospace engineer. Gary started running on October 1966 at the age of 12. Started when uh, the first time that they had a jogging craze, they showed a family on the news on TV all jogging, and my dad and some of his friends started going down to the track to try to run a mile in under eight minutes. And I went down to run with him because when you're a kid, you like to do what your dad does. And I actually beat him. I could run an eight-minute mile, and he couldn't. It was the first thing I ever beat him at. At our house, you didn't win unless you actually won. He further explained, I'm a runner because I failed as a football player. My family was very sports-oriented. And I always thought that I would play some sport. And football was my number one sport. But when I started the 10th grade, I was only five feet tall and weighed 70 pounds. I was really, really small. And I wasn't fast and I wasn't strong. So there were really not any sports options available to me. I was too small and slow for football or basketball, even wrestling, where that they have weight classes. The smallest weight class was 90 pounds. My options were pretty much running. And I went out for cross country and, and made the team and persevered enough that in running, if you work really hard, you can have at least moderate success. Our team was really good. We went to the state meet every year, which is the highest level you could get. At a young age, Gary truly discovered the love of running. He explained, I got hooked in 1970. I ran from Tullahoma to Eastle Springs and back. It was only 16 miles but that was the furthest I had ever run. I got asphalt in my blood from that day on. I could not escape the call of the open road. In the early 1970s, while living in Memphis, Tennessee for three years, he ran on the roads, but he never saw anyone else doing it. I guess it was several years I wasn't really aware that other people ran, and I was living in Memphis and I'm running down a road and I see another runner cross in front of me across a cross street. So I ran really fast until I could run him down. It was Arnold Wiener. And uh, he introduced me. There was, I became member number 12 of the Memphis runners. And 
they would have races on Saturday. You'd go down and meet at different places and start a stopwatch and toss it up under a bush. And then everyone would run the prescribed course for that day's race. And the first person back pulled out the stopwatch and called out times for the other finishers. One night, while having beers with his track buddies, they talked about the Greek Olympics in which they ran nude. They wondered what it would be like. At 3 a.m., off they went to the track and ran a nude 440. Everyone ran really fast because the further you go from your clothes, the less you wanted the other guys to get back to them before you did. The more he raced, the more discouraged he became about the results, even though he usually finished in the top 10% of his races. After high school, I had not achieved the success I wanted. I thought I would run longer races because I had stayed in good condition and I could endure a lot of punishment. So I worked up to the longer races, road races, and marathons. In 1975, Gary became a streak runner, running at least a mile every day. His streak would last into the 1980s for at least 3,500 days. He would run when it was 105 degrees or 20 degrees below zero, in sleet, hail, thunderstorms, and even the day after knee surgery. In 1976, he ran his first ultra-distance training run of 30 miles to get ready for a marathon. The first time he heard about ultras, he said, That is just stupid. I will never do it. The marathon is enough pain that anyone needs to suffer. However, he would continually move up the distances of his races, hoping that he could compete better. He knew he wasn't exceptionally fast, but he was durable. He began running without socks and did so for decades. His feet would do great, but his shoes would, quote, smell worse than week-old roadkill. Boo, you In 1977, at the age of 23, his running addiction really took hold. It was a miserable January, and I had brightened it by getting a map of the city and using January to run every single road, marking them off with a magic marker. One night, I got out the county maps and shaded all my runs, the places I had been. I then got out the maps and taped them together, three counties, I hung them on the wall over the kitchen table. The itch got worse, and soon the map included three more counties. In 1978, Gary was a 23-year-old accounting student at Middle Tennessee State University. His accounting background and love for numbers would influence his approach to running and putting on races. He was now a tough marathon runner with eight finishes to his name training about 10 miles a day, with a long 30-mile run every other week. His marathon times had plateaued. He was interested in stepping up the distance and run in an ultramarathon, but in those days, they were put on hundreds of miles from his home. He recalled, I was talking to some of my running companions here in the area. There are about 10 or 12 of us, and we call ourselves the Horse Mountain Runners. We decided to hold our own ultramarathon and hold it in Wartrace, Tennessee, 
because it is such a nice town, and a lot of us do our training in that area. This was Gary's first experience in creating a tough race. His friend John Anderson explained, Gary and I wanted to run an ultramarathon, and so we decided to put on our own. He got out the map and lined out a course. At first, I thought it should be called the Idiot's Run, but I believe Gary came up with a more appropriate name. He named it the Strolling Jim 40. For more details about the Strolling Jim 40, see episode 78. The course involved constant hills. Gary said, Runners will have to run with the course rather than at it. Six or eight doctors will be in the race, and that sort of surprised me. You'd think of all people, they would know better. For that first year in 1979, Gary used streamers to mark the course and set out water jugs every five miles. But crews were also required to drive along and provide support. Twenty-two runners started, and only two had finished an ultra before. Five had not even run a marathon. Gary's race director humor began during the first race. Jared Beasley explained, The course was full of tongue-in-cheek humor. Multiple signs spray-painted on the road read, This is not a hill. Finally, runners reached an even steeper climb, where they found another sign. This is a hill. (laughs) Gary finished his first ultra, pulling up the rear. Only two runners did not finish. Despite the difficulty of the race with 90 hills, Strolling Jim continued to have a high finishing race in the years to come and grew in popularity. He quickly understood how difficult it was to run a good race when you had to also direct it. For me, you can't race, direct a race, and run well. To run well in a race, you have to be focused on it and prepared. You can't be five miles into the race and someone drives up to tell you that somebody has taken a knife and punched holes in the water bottles at the 30-mile mark and try to figure out. After running in the race for four years, he stopped to do full-time race directing. Gary continued running marathons. His lifetime personal record, PR, was 3 hours 15 minutes when he got food poisoning and lost 17 pounds before the race. He hoped to break 3 hours, but had bad luck all the time with the weather. He downplays how fast he was in the shorter distances, but he did break 5 minutes running a mile. His PR for a 10K was 38.09. His PR for a half marathon was 119. Ultra-running legend and fellow Hall of Famer Eric Clifton met Gary for the first time in July 1980 at Grandfather Mountain Marathon in North Carolina. Clifton and his wife Shelby had finished the race and were standing where runners entered a track for a finishing lap. And we see this blonde-haired guy come jogging up, and he stops right at the entrance to the track. And he reaches in, he's got like a pocket or something. He pulls out a pack of cigarettes, he takes a cigarette, and he sticks it in his mouth, and he's got a lighter. But he doesn't use it. And he stands there, and we're like, aren't you going to finish? Yeah, I'm waiting for a woman to come in. So this girl comes running up, and so he tucks in right behind her. And he takes a cigarette and he lights it and he starts smoking his cigarette and he's running behind the woman and 20,000 people started cheering for, and he's smoking a cigarette, waving. <laughs> but he does stay behind her, even though he you know, would have finished well ahead of her. 
And so he says, it's just a great way to get accolades. <laughs> In those early days, women running marathons were still a rare sight. Gary was still trying to figure out how to run ultras well. He said, It was either 1979 or 1980 that Tom Ostler changed my life. I read some article, either by or about him, that introduced a concept so revolutionary that it completely redefined my capabilities. Walking was not just what happened after you could run no further. It was acceptable to walk on purpose, and you could mix in a little walking. Suddenly, I found that I was not limited to 30 or 35 miles in a run. I could go on and on indefinitely. In 1980, instead of running long roads in Tennessee counties, Gary got the idea to run across the state. He attempted a 125-mile run from the Alabama border to the Kentucky border. He said, After making every mistake a rookie can make, I ended up aborting after 93 miles. It was a failure that would give birth to the false state. One year while training for a long race, Gary tried to run a streak of 20 miles every day for 22 days. He recalled, The streak ended at 14 days with a bad dog bite in my calf. It wasn't so much the punctures and tearing to the muscle as the total bruising of the calf that did me in. I lost the rest of my training and the race. In August 1980, Gary put together his next race, the Nick Marshall Track Run, held on a 400-meter high school track in his nearby hometown of Shelbyville, Tennessee. It was either a 50-mile or a 100-mile run that started at night. It was named after his new ultra-running friend and fellow future Hall of Famer, Nick Marshall from Pennsylvania. Gary's entry forms always included humor. He wrote about a track ultra, which, quote, must be experienced to be understood, sort of like death. He predicted, We'll still have a good time and experience the fellowship of shared pain and accomplishment. Well, the race didn't go well for the runners. Only one finished 50 miles, but it probably was viewed as a success to Gary. In 1982, in a typical strange Cantrell humor, the winner was awarded the Nick Marshall Cup. Marshall explained, The award consisted of a genuine used Nick Marshall jockstrap which Gary had me send to him. It took some digging in the attic to come up with such a relic. <laughs> in 1983, the entry form began, quote, Glamour, pageantry, big stars, live TV coverage, throngs of admirers. You too can avoid all these things by joining us. Gary's masochist race-directing skills were further honed when in 1981 he put together the Idiot's Run in Shelbyville, Tennessee, a road race consisting of 76 miles and 37 significant hills supported by crews. He was surprised when several runners expressed interest. He said, Is there no run so tough as to discourage these maniacs? If we had a 250-miler through hell with no fluids allowed, I think we'd get 10 to 15 people. A dozen people showed up for the first idiot's run, 
all but one with a 100-mile finish. The next year, 1982, Gary, now a veteran of 32 marathons and 17 ultras, extended the Idiot's Run course to 170 miles and eliminated flat sections, gaining experience adjusting courses each year to make them harder. He explained, The objective isn't so much to see who finishes first, as to simply see who survives for the longest distance. I'm confident this is the single grimmest race held anywhere in the world. There is a run out west, known as Western States 100, which was supposed to have been the most difficult demanding ultramarathon. Well, our idiot's run will be six miles longer than that. Actually, it was 14 miles longer. And the terrain will be just as rugged. The course is almost a continuous string of steep and treacherous hills. And if we've had rain the week of the run, there will be as many as 18 creeks and rivers to cross. An interviewing reporter said, When Cantrell describes the run, his voice sounds eerily like Jack Nicholson's in The Shining. Here's Johnny! <laughs> Nick Marshall reported, Gary got to within 10 miles of the end, was so tired by then, that if it were the body of a mule that he was flogging forward rather than his own body, he would have been arrested for cruelty to a dumb animal. Animals were a feature of the race. Marvin Skatterberg from New York roused a big dog at 1 a.m. when he went back and forth in front of a farmhouse, trying to figure out if he was headed in the right way. The dog woke up the family. Out in the dark, on a deserted country road, the man of the house had a friendly but understandably perplexed question for Marvin. What kind of walkathon are you going on at this time of the night? Scatterberg explained. Why, actually, sir, it's not a walkathon. I came from New York to traipse more than 100 miles of your Tennessee hills for the fun of it. Only five runners started the Idiot's Run in 1983. Cantrell gave every runner the bib number of four that year because, quote, this simplifies the results sheet. Gary ran several other ultras in 1983, including the Edward Payson six-day track race held at Cooper River Stadium in Pensacola, New Jersey. You got me going in Gary Cantrell arrived in an overhauled checker cab with his wife Sandra and 16-month-old son Case. They set up their yellow cabin tent on the side of the track where Sandra attended to a cooler of ice and soda and looked forward to a week of relaxing while her husband pumped his legs. Gary finished last with 132 miles. His running goal was just to do better than he did before. During the summer of 1983, Gary put on a race across Tennessee, something he had always wanted to do. Cantrell levied a toll of 25 cents for the 122-miler, generating an income of $2.25 from entry fees. He called it a two-bit race, saying, By two-bit standards, the course is a piece of cake. Three finished, the race was repeated in 1984, 
and was a predecessor of the last annual Ball State 500k endurance run that would be created in 2006. Gary loved being out on the open roads of Tennessee. Growing my running map became a passion. I left on Christmas Eve and ran overnight to Sandra's dad's house for Christmas. It was a hundred and some odd miles. It became part of the holiday tradition with reports on where family members passed me on the way to the gatherings. When I arrived, it was a nice hot shower, a huge feast, and I spent the rest of the day either watching ball games or sitting on the back porch drinking beer and smoking cigarettes. He did many other journey runs. I took trips that went on for days, overnighting in cheap motels or cemeteries and church lawns. My map grew and grew. The map I have now is something to see. It is 30 feet long and 5 feet tall, crisscrossed with lines. Few ultra runners of today know that Gary was the wise source of advice and tips for years in the ultra running magazine established in 1981. He wrote a regular From the South column. During the early 1980s, when the sport was still relatively small in America, he addressed many topics. How to organize an ultra? How to take care of all runners, not just the winners? He emphasized the mental aspects of running ultras. With few women in the sport yet, he warned the men to put aside their egos and be prepared to be beaten by women who would do well in the endurance sport. Gary wrote about the DNF and gave four valid reasons to quit during a race when you were still ahead of cutoffs. One, when it feels like enough. Two, when going on would cause injury. Three, when your life could be threatened. Four, when you drop. He was always adamant that a DNF was a failure, and thus playing taps at his future Barkley for each DNF became a firm tradition. He reminded the sport that we needed to have a balance in our lives. What is called for is our keeping in mind how unimportant ultramarathoning actually is. At best, it is a bizarre hobby. At worst, it is a vice. Gary encouraged other ultra runners to not run the same mellow 10-mile training runs day after day, rather to get out and explore. He encouraged runners to try to tackle long training runs, like his attempts to run across Tennessee. Four years before the Barclay Marathons were created in 1982, Gary wrote, my own pet project is to attempt the Perimeter Trail at Frozen Head State Park in East Tennessee. While it is only 26 miles, there is no possibility of any fluids or supplies except those carried by the runner, and the terrain is unimaginably difficult. In 1983, he was writing on topics that later applied to his future Barkley race. He wrote about the, quote, toughest course sharing the opinion that the toughest wouldn't just involve steep elevation climbs, rocky terrains, and extreme distance, but would also involve a mental toughness aspect to it, introducing mental stress. He also wrote about the benefits and dangers of media coverage for ultras. It could bring an air of legitimacy to the sport, 
or create a story painting the race as a circus spectacle. Gary continued to compete in many ultras until about 1985, when he turned most of his efforts into directing races and creating the Barkley Marathons. He said, If I had been the runner I wanted to be, I would have never put on a race. My career would have been over decades ago. What seemed like bad luck at the time was really good luck. I was able to stay involved in the sport. As he looked back on the years and his induction in the American Ultra Running Hall of Fame, Gary wrote, All I had really done is put on races I would like to run the way I thought they should be put on. The reward was so great that I kept doing it, even when I could no longer run them, and the rewards had been many. The places I have been, the people I have met, the great performances I have seen, the ones that amazed the world, and the ones that amazed only the athletes who did them. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>